Listen as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 23, reading verses 14 through 26. And David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have, had, you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there. For I am told he is very crafty. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty. And I will go with you and it shall be if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. They told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. I've been watching the NCAA basketball tournament over the last several weeks, and for a non-contact sport, it's actually very, a very physical game nowadays. The athletes uh, are so fast and strong that uh, there's often a lot of collisions that take place underneath the basket. And one of the things I've noticed that's a little different from my younger days when I, I played a little bit of basketball is that whenever someone gets knocked down, the whole team all runs towards him to help him up and pat him on his back and to, uh, to be there to help him after he has crashed down onto the floor so dramatically. And there's something to that help that I would like to highlight today in this passage, the help that Jonathan gives to his friend, friend David, how he rallies to him to help him up in his hour of need. Proverbs 18.24 says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And in this passage, Jonathan was such a friend. In contrast to Saul and in contrast 
to the treachery of the Ziphites, Jonathan went to David, and as it says here, he strengthened his hand in God. Once more, Jonathan foreshadows Jesus Christ himself, that true friend who sticks closer than a brother. So drawing on this text, I intend to describe what it means to be a friend that helps a struggling brother or sister, what it looks like and how you can be such a friend that strengthens your friends in Christ. I'd like to begin by by setting the context, by seeing the trouble that David was in. And there is treachery that David faces, the treachery of the Ziphites. You might remember in Psalm 54, I pointed out who the Ziphites were. They were David's own countrymen. I called them their, his cousins. These were, uh, these were people he was related to. And it's often said that blood is thicker than, than water, right? You should be able to depend on your family. But David was betrayed by his own countrymen. And through this, God had been teaching David many things. Most recently, we had seen how David had learned that when he made decisions, when he led God's people, that he must turn to the Lord and lean on him. He must look to his word and, and look to the Lord in prayer to guide him in everything that he does. That led him to saving the city of Keilah. And it's very satisfying in that passage, isn't it? To see David asking God's direction, getting it and acting on it and having such success. We can sympathize with that, can't we? When, when we ask God to lead us and to direct us and we see clarity in that leadership and we understand how to apply God's word and then we see the Lord answering that prayer something that really builds us up in that. And God is kind to help us in that way uh, many times. But that, that's what makes what happens next a test or another trial for David. Because then God led David back out into the wilderness, back out to be running and hiding from Saul. He was in the mountains. He was taking shelter in what verse 14 calls the strongholds in the wilderness, probably some type of encampments in the remote areas of the country, uh, the hill country of Judah. So just imagine how this must have been discouraging for David and for his men. Another testing time that they would go through. They had done what God asked them to do. And now they're back where they were, running from Saul. Now, I don't know about you, but as I described the first sense of asking God, following that, and having the Lord's provision so that there's answer that clearly shows that God's approval for that. But that's not what seems to be happening here. We expect if I do this, God will do that. If I obey, that God will reward. You know what I mean on that? 
that's, that's kind of the way we're built, this positive reinforcement. But David did what God commanded, only to now be on the run again, to have his own tribal countrymen, his cousins, as I've called them, to betray him and to have Saul pursue him once again, even to the point of of Saul being on one side of the mountain, David being on the other, and Saul, in a sense, going around on either side to trap David. Let's go back to the Ziphites just a minute. When opportunity presented itself, the Ziphites came to Saul and said, hey, we know where David is. Come with us. We'll turn him over into your hands. And Saul was delighted to get this intel, right? Saul was delighted to have the Ziphites turn over their own countrymen. Now, last week we saw that Kela was in a dilemma, and I said it's understandable that, that Saul might come and destroy the entire city just to get to David. And so God told David, yes, the city will, will turn you over. Well, they were kind of trapped. They were in a, a hard place. The Ziphites were doing something different, right? They initiated this betrayal. They went to Saul to say, we know where he is and we'll turn him over to you. And Saul was really happy to get this news. Blessed are you of the Lord for you have shown compassion on me. Can you have can you catch the sense of of Saul's audacity to bless the Ziphites in the name of the Lord. Over and over again Saul has shown his uh, his nature of taking God's name, taking his authority, and using it for his own purposes. And he's using it here. He makes out that, uh, or he projects that the Ziphites are on God's side, that Saul is on God's side, and that David is the enemy. Another mark of Saul's tyranny, another mark of the fact that, uh, that he is not knowing the mercy of God. He's not looking forward to the Redeemer Christ, but he's taking matters into his own, th- own hands. Gordon Ketty says this of Saul and the Ziphites. He says that nothing reveals more the reality of the love of Christ in your heart and mind, or more starkly indicates its absence than the way we treat those whom we believe have done us some wrong. Ketty speaks of the vindictive spirit that comes out here, a vindictive spirit that argues a lack of grace in the heart, that evidences an unforgiving spirit, and most of all demonstrates a sad incomprehension of Christ's forgiveness of our own sins. 
This is the context in which David is now living. That the ruler of Israel is hunting him down with a vindictive spirit. That his own countrymen are betraying him. We don't know exactly the motivation. You could speculate a number of things, but still a betrayal that takes place. Evidence that their heart has no knowledge of the grace of God in salvation. Evidence that Christ was not their Lord and Savior. And further, a test of David's faith. Which puts Jonathan, on the other hand, in stark contrast to the context of those that were betraying and hating David. Jonathan, out of the love of, for the Lord and out of love for David, went to David to strengthen his hand in God. He encouraged his struggling friend. And at that point, the encouraging a, struggle of friend, a struggling friend that I want to expand upon in the rest of this message because in that context, it just shines out. It shines out to show how, how we as believers can also minister to those who are struggling in a variety of ways. Remember the context again. David had entered into this, this new time of testing, another time of fear. He must have said many times, as the Psalms do, how long, O Lord, must I fear those who are hunting me? How long? That's a question that comes from a soul that is, is in distress, who is, is longing for relief and deliverance. How many t- times must he have sang Psalm 54, penned for this occasion? Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. And in the midst of this wilderness betrayal, Jonathan went to David. He went to help his friend while he was in trouble. When I say trouble, I mean the obvious trouble of David's being enemy number one in Saul's mind. But also, I want you to think of the inner trouble that David must have faced as well. The fear, the anxiety, the doubt, maybe even the self-recrimination and accusations This must be coming on me because of something I did wrong. All of these troubles would be welling up in a soul that is under persecution and under suffering. It's something that comes through in what is described in verse 16 of of Jonathan strengthening David's hand in God. If you strengthen someone, it implies that there is weakness. There's fear, that there's trouble, there's anxiety. And this is what Jonathan came to do. And it's this act of sacrificial love that I want to expand on in three applications from this text. How is it that you can strengthen 
or encourage a struggling friend. That's what strengthening in someone's hand means. How can, how did Jonathan do that? How can you as a believer strengthen and encourage a struggling friend? I'm going to put it into three, hopefully, uh, easily remembered catchphrases. So the first is to see, to see him or to see her who is struggling. Don't, don't avoid them. Don't act like they aren't there. Don't act like you can't see them. Instead, see them. Acknowledge them. Acknowledge the struggle that they are facing. This comes out in Jonathan's case in the fact that it would have been easy for Jonathan to to push David to the side, to not see him. It would have been safer. It would have been politically expedient. He could have reasoned, I can do more good from where I am than if I acknowledge David. That threatens my position. I can help him behind the scenes. And that's not what Jonathan did. He acknowledged David. In fact, he had done this all throughout this relationship. Jonathan was one of the first to see David after, the, after his victory over Goliath. He came and he stood by Jonathan and promoted him in the eyes of Saul and of the world, uh, of, of the nation, say, saying, this is God's champion. He equipped him. He supported him, realizing that David's ascending meant the potential of Jonathan's descending. The man who would be king acknowledged the one who would be king. Jonathan saw Jonathan. There's something about suffering that makes us uncomfortable to be around it. It's messy. It's hard. inconvenient. It may even be dangerous. Those troubles may be grief. In our society, really doesn't like grief. It could be sickness. It could be brokenness in marriage or family. It could be some sin that has entrapped our friend and and we just don't want to have anything to do with it. To see our friend's struggle is something that is revolting. It's exhausting. But Jonathan saw David. 
He rose, he went down to David, his friend. And in doing so, he acknowledged David. Saul, Saul taking God's name in vain, slandered David as an enemy of the state, as an enemy of God, as a crafty guerrilla soldier, one deserving to be betrayed. And Jonathan exposed himself to danger by acknowledging David. He acknowledged the the reality of the trouble that he faced. He didn't minimize it. He didn't shy away from it. Instead, he saw. And that first step may be the hardest because it's, it is a lot easier to love that friend that has it all together, right? Messiness is uncomfortable and inconvenient. It threatens the idolatry of my own comfort. So it's just easier to not even see the struggling friend. It's easier to pass by on the other side of the road. You remember the parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan? A certain merchant was going down the road. He's mugged by robbers. He's left on the side of the road for dead. And there are three different individuals who come along the road, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And no, this isn't a joke. (laughs) A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan go down the road, and the priest and the Levite see with their eyes the suffering man and they cover their eyes, pass by on the other side. Jesus told this parable to answer a young man who's trying to justify himself. He knew the summary of the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said, well, you do the same. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, there's that messiness coming in. Well, who is my neighbor? Who was the neighbor? It was Jesus' question to this young man. And he had to say, was the one who helped this suffering man. How do you encourage a struggling friend? First of all, you need to see her. You need to see him. You need to acknowledge them and the trouble that they're in. Second, be present. That's what Jonathan did. He went to David. Not only did he acknowledge it publicly, but he actually went to David. He <laughs> Saul couldn't even find David, but to Jonathan did. Part of God's providence that we'll come to next week, but also part of Jonathan's determination. David is hiding, but I will find him. I will go be with him. And that physical presence makes a difference, doesn't it? There's a ministry of presence that comes through and encouraging a struggling friend. 
It can be an embodied presence of going there to put an arm around a shoulder, to hold a hand of someone who is suffering, to give a a hug and to cry with those who are weeping. It can take the form of reaching out to connect in other ways. You can't always be there physically, but you can be there in other ways. To connect through the phone or by mail or by other acts of kindness. Being present is what Jonathan did, and it was a presence that he pursued even though it was inconvenient. Do you think this was an easy trip for Jonathan or a hard one? It was hard. Do you think he looked at his Google calendar and said, oh, I've got this empty space on my calendar next week. I think I can squeeze it in to go see David. Do you think it was easy to find David? No, I've already said that that was hard. But it was his determination. Do you think he said, well, I'm going to be traveling kind of in that area. I think I can swing over there and see David. (laughs) My trips are sometimes that way. It's convenient for me. He went and he found David, even though it was hard, even though it was inconvenient. Let's go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite passed by on the other side of the road. They had important work to do. They had religious work to do. They couldn't stop right now. They might become unclean and then invalidate their service that they were meant to do. I can't stop right now. The Samaritan stopped. He interrupted his journey. He didn't have to pull out his Google calendar to see if he had time. (laughs) He put the injured man on his own donkey. He took him to a hotel. He ministered to him there, spending time nursing him back to health. He invested his own funds to pay for that. Once more, I'm convicted of my desire for personal comfort and convenience. It takes time to help a struggling friend. I've even caught myself thinking, well, maybe I could help this individual by calling on the phone with my credit card and relieving whatever it is that is troubling them. I rationalize that by saying, I don't have time to go be with that individual and to help just by being present. Now, even Job's friend did something right by going and being with Job, just sitting with him for seven days without saying anything, just being there. Now they opened their mouths and they got into trouble, but 
they did something right. Something that I often fail to do. Let me give a word of caution here. Uh, we live in an information age and enjoy a level of information that is unparalleled in history. The click of a button, you can be informed of, of people that are suffering on the other side of the world today. And you can even be overwhelmed by that. There's something of information fatigue that we get, right? There is so much suffering in the world. So I'm not saying that you should be physically present in every disaster. You can't do that. And even Jesus withdrew to rest and did not address every hurt in the world. But where he was, he was present, right? And so have that in mind where relationship and where opportunity presents itself to think of how you can be present. It may be actually physically being there or by uh, being with your beloved brother or sister in some other way that reminds them that you're there with them. And I'm drawn along in this example by the, uh, the love and care that you as a congregation have shown to me and my family over this last month. You have embodied Christ, both by your presence physically, by care and concern that's been addressed in prayers, in hugs, in shared tears, in meals, in cards, in phone calls. I'm drawn along in this. So how do you encourage a struggling friend? See and be present. Thirdly, point them to Jesus. And that's what Jonathan did with David. He strengthened his hand in God. He gently and firmly reassured David of God's presence and his purpose. He reassured David of this by using God's own word and his covenants to David. And so Jonathan, in verse 17, rehearses the covenant that God had made with David. You shall be king over Israel. And he can say this boldly because God said it. This isn't Jonathan's wishful thinking. God had said, you are the next king. I have anointed you to this. And he encourages David by pointing him to Jesus, to pointing him to the Savior that is anticipated by David and Jonathan and is realized in their situation in all that God said and promised. And so Jonathan and David then mimic those, uh, that action of God by covenanting themselves together and by Jonathan orienting himself to the promises of God. It's fascinating what he says to David next. 
You shall be king and I'll be by your side. There's the ascendancy of David and the, and the, uh, the, the backing away of Jonathan to say, I will serve the king that God has anointed. And even my father knows this. In other words, Jonathan was accepting the word of God where his father did not. And in reality, Jonathan was pointing himself to the Lord. He was doing God's will. And even though this would not be realized in the way that Jonathan envisioned it, because Jonathan would never see David again. He would die in battle before David ascended to the throne. But even now, Jonathan is standing by David's side. When helping those who hurt, it's easy to swoop in and to take charge in a way that ends up pointing the suffering soul to yourself rather than to Jesus. The encouragement that your friend needs is to see Jesus through you. And there's presence that, is, uh, that connects you together very definitely, but that connection can't stop there. It has to be oriented to how Jesus sees your suffering friend how Jesus acknowledges that struggle, how Jesus enters into that suffering himself. Not how you do, but how Jesus does. And it is very tempting, and I'll confess again my own tendency, as I like to be the guy who comes and delivers, who helps. It's very flattering. It's... it's uh, You can get a big head by doing this. I was the one who saved. But that is not real salvation. You are not the Savior. We'll just put it bluntly. You aren't. Jesus is. So point your friends to Jesus. It means that as you encourage, as you help, keep in mind the importance of always pointing to our Savior Jesus. You will fail, you will disappoint, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that friend is ultimately Jesus. Isn't that what God has done for us? He has seen your suffering. He has entered into it in the grandest way possible in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He has not turned away from you. He has not been revolted by your anxiety, your fear, your doubting, your sin. He does not turn away from you. Instead, he enters in and and he stoops from heaven to save us. And he himself has said, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you so that you may be where I am. 
And as I read this morning from Revelation chapter 7, we get a glimpse of that eternal glory, which is ours in Jesus Christ. It says there that Christ himself will be our shepherd and will lead us to fountains of living water. And God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and wipe away every tear from your eye. He is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. We pray that, like Christ, that you may befriend your struggling friends by strengthening their hands and their hearts in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for the encouragement that you give to us. More than encouragement, you give us salvation in Christ. And you see our struggles, you know our fears, you know our sins. You embrace us, and you suffer with us, and you love us, and you draw us further up and further in. And we thank you, O God, for that steadfast love that we have enjoyed. And having enjoyed that from your hand We pray, God, that we would share that with our loved brothers and sisters around us. Help us to see and to be present and to point them to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing Psalm 42D. We sang the first part of this. I want you to remember that as we sing that The New Testament says that we minister to one another as we sing. We we minister to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so this is one way that we minister to each other. We're saying in this psalm to each other, Oh, why, my soul, are you bowed down? Why do do you despair? Why discourage be hope now in God? I'll praise him still. My help, my God, is he. We'll say this to the Lord and we'll say it to each other as well. Let's stand and sing Psalm 42, Selection D. 